The man of will breaks all boundaries. As above, so below. Magic of come to realize is a new way of seeing our own world. Something divine truly does exist. You're listening to the Culture Shock Podcast with your host, Dave Escuro. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. My name is Dave. I will be your host today on this journey through time and space and discovery as we welcome our guest this week, one of my close personal friends, Leah Martin-Brown. And I know that I do sort of say this at the top of every episode because it's frankly quite true that many of my guests are dear friends, but Leah is in particular one of my closest friends. In fact, if it were not for our friendship, I may not have met my wife. She was actually the one who introduced us. Um, She's not only just a friend and and a a comrade and uh, a patriot, but she's also someone I have a great deal of admiration for not only because of her talent as the lead singer for the band Evil Walks, uh, not only because she's a person who every time you're around them, they just sort of exude positive energy, but because Leah, as you'll hear in the podcast, has gone through some dark periods of life. Um, She's struggled with addiction um, and just the nature of the the music business in Hollywood at at a relatively young age, and she's handled it with grace and with dignity. And she's found a way to rise above um, and enter into a program of sobriety for the last two years, which is hard for anyone to do, much less someone who's feeling the pressures of trying to make it in the music industry. And so I have the utmost respect and admiration for her and her journey. And I welcome you on being a part of that and listening to her story. And I recommend strongly if what you hear today inspires you to seek out a uh, Alcoholic Anonymous program or any sort of 12-step program. Um, and if you just think that Leah is a cool person, you're right, she is. And you should check out her band, Evil Walks, uh, E-V-O-L-W-A-L-K-S. She is an excellent singer. She's an excellent front person. She is um, an inspiration for anyone who might be struggling with any sort of addiction or depression issues. And uh, I think that her story should really impact everyone uh, in a very positive way. So without further ado, I introduce my guest this week, my dear friend, Leah Martin-Brown, lead singer of Evil Walks. You spent, what, six to eight months in Sweden? Nine. Nine months. Ten. And then... Ten? Ten months. So almost a year. Yeah, October through through until July. So so what was it about... um, the environment of Sweden that made you decide to come back to America when it's as hot as it could possibly be during the year? Because that's about as extreme as it could get in terms of climate. Well, I absolutely hate the cold. So I, that's exactly why I was like, oh, it's July. I need to come back. And I know everyone says like, Sweden is beautiful in the summer. And it absolutely is beautiful in the summer. But I had to endure October through until May, early June of just freezing. And even then it would be like, you know, 20 degrees in the morning or like, what is that in Fahrenheit? Like, it'd be like... 69 70 <laughs> and they're like oh it's hot today i'm like hey, what drugs are you on and can i have some yeah right yeah right, right. so i'm loving the heat from from like a vocal standpoint because obviously you're, you're spending you're spending 10 months in sweden predominantly recording and, mm-hmm. and working on the next evil walks album and all those things from a vocal standpoint does being going from the the you know you're from australia it's hot you live in america and los angeles where it's not always hot but it's predominantly hot now you're in a country where 69 degrees is warm for them. 
Did you notice an impact on your voice as you were recording in any way? I absolutely did. Because, um, you know, it does... I have noticed, and I can't speak on for other people, but I, I know at least for me, um, you know, usually, like, the voice is a muscle. You have to be warm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just warming up, but you have to be in a warm environment. Uh, it is very difficult to sing when it's cold, uh, just because even if you've warmed up, your vocals don't like it very much. So if you add traveling and jet lag and then how dry it is in Sweden, especially during the winter, like singing in, in when it's dry is quite difficult. Like ideal conditions are like humidity. Sure. Um, just keeps everything nice. And I can't say like every word I'm going to say is going to sound moist. terrible. Just moist. moist. Lubricated, okay. whatever. I, I knew what you wanted to say. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did actually notice um, a big difference when I got to Sweden, you know, because I hadn't been using my voice as regularly as prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sweden was like kind of the first time I'd really gotten back into doing what I did. And so I was thinking like, oh, I've got nodes, I can't sing properly, like I couldn't do my... And then I was like, how could you have nodes? You haven't been hardcore singing. So I just realized that it was because of the environment. And when you say hardcore singing, you don't mean like hardcore, like, no, no. like hate breed. You just no. mean like you haven't been actively using. Uh, yeah, I went from using, you know, prior to the pandemic, I was singing anywhere between, you know, on a bad week, two times a week mm-hmm. for gigs, on a good week, like three to five plus rehearsals. Uh, and then going to zero or just playing in my bedroom, which is like a totally different thing. Um so yeah, it was, it was difficult as it started to warm up, it got better. And I definitely, um, I found like a few things that I could do to help, but yeah, singing at first was really tough. And in some ways it feels like you're the timing of everything kind of worked out because a lot of musicians and, um, and entertainment people in general were kind of in a stop down during the mm-hmm. pandemic. And especially I feel like music more than even movies. I, a few episodes back, I had young sing from the band silent on and, and, you know, for him, he was able to sort of bridge that time period where he wasn't able to perform by making vegan burgers because mm-hmm. he, he owns a bar as a day oh, job okay. and he wasn't able to run the bar because mm-hmm. of the shutdown. So that him and his girlfriend were able to do this sort of like a delivery service. Mm-hmm. But for you, you were able to actually stay doing music for the most part, albeit more in a studio and in a writing perspective. Yeah, it's definitely... Um you know, because the main thing, and obviously the thing I love to do is perform, and obviously that's absolutely out. Um, I did do uh, like two live streams, one in LA at the Bourbon Room in September, mm-hmm. something like that, and then one in Sweden in December. Um, but it's not the same thing. So I was very lucky though, because I was able to concentrate on maybe areas that I would not have been as focused on because, you know, I do love performing live and everything else is always taken a back seat. Um, so it was really nice to be able to really explore my voice, find new ways to use it and just get stuck into something without feeling, you know, without getting that FOMO of like, why aren't I on tour? Why aren't I playing this festival? Oh, I wish I could do the studio tonight, but I really want a gig. So having that removed has, um, you know, have to look at it from the bright side. It's been really beneficial and I've grown as an artist for sure. Well, and I feel that the people who have had the most success during the pandemic and who grew during the pandemic often sort of fell back onto that. They used that time to build up skills that they had for various reasons, not had that time. Like for me, being able to like dive headfirst into magic, for example, was something that I might've been able to do to some degree, but I wouldn't have been able to do if I didn't have that time off during COVID to really practice it because of just my workload, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing happened when I got into film. You know, I worked in retail and and I worked part time in film for like a year and a half, but it wasn't until a shop that I was working at essentially just went out of business one day that I had time that I could then develop into getting on sets and 
developing a craft in a different way. And, and I find that a lot of people face that. They're just so used to the grind and we live in this sort of real hustle grind culture that there's never that built in time to take a step back and just develop skills and um, tweak skills and add new elements. You know, I'm sure there are different new added elements that you brought to your vocal range and to your lyric writing and to your performancing that you might not have had the time to put together if you didn't have sort of a mandated break from the constant gigging and the performing and all those things. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think, uh, I think I definitely used this time to focus on things because I'd always get distracted and now I'm back in LA. I just have to, you know, focus on making sure I keep those skills up because right. it's very easy to fall back into old habits. But you know, I, it definitely gave the opportunity to focus on things, even, um, even just the way I sing, mm -hmm. uh, going to gigs all the time, especially playing in a lot of the rock clubs. They don't really mix. Some of them do like some of them do a wonderful job, but there are some clubs you play, like you can't hear shit on stage. Yeah. You can't. So you just like end up, you know, just yelling everything and you lose the dynamics and you use the, uh, you kind of lose the really beautiful intricacies that are, exist in all the levels of volume in the voice. So I think, being in the pandemic has really um, just even vocally given me an opportunity to realize like, hey, you don't have to yell all the time. Sure, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can be sultry and sexy. You can be loud. You can belt. You can do all of it. It's all like, it doesn't mean you're any less of a rock singer if you like chill it out. So Sure. And I also imagine like there's an adrenaline that comes from being around the yes. crowd and the, the the need to move around that mm -hmm. would some, some degree affect your voice in ways that you have been able to work around and, and especially when it comes to recording, like give flourishes that you might not have always done. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's uh, definitely given more time to think about what I would do. Mm. Um, Cause I was mostly working on my own project in Sweden. And so I really was able to, for the first time really ever. And I think sobriety had a lot to do with it as well, because I think you're just naturally more engaged mm -hmm. and kind of have more confidence to think to at least think you know what you're talking about. Sure, yeah. Whether I do or not is an entirely different story, but at least I think I know. Um, so that definitely gave me the opportunity to play around with ideas and concepts that in the past, you know, I when I'd worked with certain producers, I had wanted to do it a certain way. They're like, no, just sing it like this. I'm like, oh, all right, well, I'll do that. Whereas now I'm like, no, I don't want to do it like that. How about we do it like this? And then sometimes I'd be like, okay, you were right. I'm sorry. And then sometimes they're like, oh, let's... So it was cool. Well, I would imagine, I mean, just based on what I've read from other musicians and interviews and things of that nature the time for most mus musicians most artists of being able to spend months in a studio mm -hmm. and really fine-tune sounds and create sonic landscapes mm -hmm. and things of that nature is something of a bygone era it feels like for most people and for a lot of folks it's like you're in and out in a week or two weeks yeah. and then you're done right and that's all the time you have mm -hmm. so you either go into it super prepared or you just sort of follow whatever the producer says and you do the best you can with the time that you're allowed and you kind of get what you get. Yeah, I think, um, it, you know, if you're working with a... I've always worked with wonderful people and great teams, so I've always been really happy with the products I've given. But there, it is a big... You know, there's a huge difference between... Um, recording songs that you've been testing live and mm -hmm. you've written like maybe you wrote these songs two or three years ago and you've workshopped with them with the band and you figured out what feels good and you know where this feels so by the time you get into the studio you've done your demos you're like okay yeah we did this but let's try this and have all this this time you will always end up with a vastly superior product sure yeah um anything i've always done you know i've always been really proud of but obviously it's not 
like some of these songs now I've been playing for five or six years if I'd have gone into a studio now to record those songs, they would be completely like I feel like even better. Of course, yeah, because um, of the time, just the time, the time to develop and workshop it. And... Yeah, and to really explore the emotions, because you know when you write the lyrics, you mean one thing, and then when you start playing them and singing them, you're like, oh, well, I meant it this when I wrote it, but now I'm singing it and playing it. I feel like it relates to this more, and then you've on record, you've got what you were originally thinking, like in your emotions, which. You know, but it is unfortunately our culture is all about like content, content, content rather than quality, sure. quality, quality. So, you know, if you spend two years, three years making an album, unless you're obviously like Tool or Judas Priest or someone, people are going to be like, oh, well, they're irrelevant, aren't they? Yeah, and that's a, that's a real, I mean, I've seen this in the, in the film industry as well. You see it in a lot of industries, mm-hmm. frankly. Like, it, it, everything is about content and populating a certain amount of it to stay. Just to just to be relevant, just to be yeah. in the minds in the in the eye of the public versus quality. Mm-hmm. And there was a big, uh, you know, blow up about once again about like Scorsese and Marvel films. This begin got brought up after two years, and I think one of the things that really that I took away from his criticism was that the time to take chances has is almost lost for most artists. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, because everything is at such a rapid pace, I mean, I make movies in, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 days or less. I've done an action film in 11 days. Oh, my God. And there's simply no time to really add any nuance to mm-hmm. it um, or get proper coverage to really tell a story in the full array of, of tools that film allows. And I would assume for musicians, it's very much the same way. That like I remember one time I saw a behind-the-scenes of AFI, mm-hmm. and it was when they were making their Sing the Sorrow album and the drummer was commenting on how he literally had to test dozens of different Mm -hmm. snares and toms and cymbals and for even for within one song you might use you might record with one way yeah and then you swap out to get your cymbal work and you do that with a completely different cymbal Mm -hmm. rather than build a, a kit you would you would like really emphasize certain things or maybe even within parts of songs you swap out a tom for a different part and it's that level of detail that feels like it's kind of missing nowadays for most yeah. people. Unless you're, unless you're lucky enough to have some sort of home studio or yeah. something along those lines. There are definitely still producers who work like that. Um, I know Jacob Herman in Sweden. He's He has a studio in Gothenburg. And he's renowned to be, like I think, one of the world's best drum engineers. Mm-hmm. And he absolutely still does that. There are guitar techs that will spend... Uh, guitar engineers that will spend, like... Um, friggin three to four weeks just trying to find the right amp sound but unless you're working with you know a top tier label and you are a top tier act right you just you just don't a have the budget and they won't let you have the time um especially you know any kind of creative person even if you are at that level comes up against you know whether we're in the tiktok generation we're in the instagram reels generation you know you've got people who are now professional content creators where every single day they, you know, they might take one day and shoot like 25 different videos, but you know, they're releasing content every single day. And it's, you know, that's what's favored in the algorithm on Instagram. You know, if you don't post every day or interact every day, you get pushed. And because Instagram and other social media channels are now where people are looking for, you know, new acts and new artists, it becomes, it's, it's almost like, it can be very damaging, I think, um, for an artist, not only for the quality of work that you produce because you're constantly rushing. And let's be honest, like certain things just shouldn't be rushed. Mm-hmm. They just shouldn't be. 
Um, and then I also think like mentally, it's also very defeating for an artist because you'll have something that you've worked on painstakingly, like, you know, even if it's, even if it's only for two or three months, you've worked on something, um, and you've released it, you've got this baby, you put it out into the world and sometimes you'll receive barely any acknowledgement on it. And then you've got someone doing a TikTok video who's famous for doing random dances that they're copying from someone else, or maybe they've invented their own. That's, you know. Which is always fun to watch, but then they're going absolutely viral and you're just like, it's very defeating. And then people are complaining about the state of the music industry and it's like, well... Yeah, it's a a double-edged sword. I would also argue that it's not sustainable. It is. I mean, it depends. If you have the time to do... It's not sustainable as an artist. I think the new generation, definitely, it's sustainable to continue doing this short content But for a musical artist, um, it's not. I mean, there are prolific creators out there, but they're few and far between. I don't. I I I hate to wrongly attribute this quote, but I I do remember there was a famous musician. I don't think it was Keith Richards, but someone to the said something to the effect of like, "You only have so many songs in you. Mm. As a songwriter, you only have so you know whatever your whatever amount of songs that was sort of divinely gifted to you. That's what Mm -hmm. you have. And if you're having to turn out a new song every week." Mm-hmm. Right versus maybe ten songs every three years. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I mean, sure, you can keep writing, but you just and you see it in a lot of music, music yeah. nowadays, where even bands that used to really love, they're not writing bad songs, but they're just not writing songs to the quality that they used to yeah. because there's this constant urge and need because of the financials to always be creating mm-hmm. not only like one song, but like you know. Yeah. 10 songs, you know, constantly, constantly, constantly to the point where at some point there is just going to be the inevitable dip in quality. Mm. Like the, the thing as a writer, like especially when you're working on albums and things, you'll always be asked to write a ridiculous amount of songs because you can write a hundred songs. Maybe one will be good. Maybe right. two, if you're lucky, if you're really good, three will be worth, you know, looking into. So, you know, we are always writing, but a lot of these things that are meant to be experiments or drafts for something greater, I think because of the pressure of quality and uh, content are getting released now, which is, you know, some of them just, and I've done it myself, you know, because that, Oh, what have you released lately? You're only good as your last release. And it's like, well, can we just go back to like when we used to buy vinyls and listen to it all? And then a year and a half later, a new record would come out. That would be nice. Well, yeah. And I think, I think culture we've changed. And I want to go back a little bit because, because that time period that you talked about, that time period of buying vinyls or buying an album Mm -hmm. and truly listening to it, I I would assume was one of the big influences on you mm. growing up. Like, at what point, how long would you consider yourself a professional musician? And really at what point did you start realizing that you had a gift to sing and begin your singing journey? Um, it's, I mean, it depends how you, it depends how you define professional musician. I, I think. say however you define it is what matters. Okay. All right. I'm a bit. I'm a. I have. I come from the Robert Rodriguez School of Filmmaking. So like, <laughs> whenever you considered yourself a professional singer, that's when you were. Okay. Well, so I, I think the first time I ever realized that maybe I could sing, I think I was in like fifth grade, maybe. Okay. And I just moved schools from. I, I the main school that I went to for most of my like primary school and high school years was Marymount College on the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I went there from years three to years 12, but there was a brief period in year f- half of year five and like half of year six when I actually moved schools to Our Lady. No, that was my first school. Some other school. I went to several ones, uh-huh. but it was an awful school and I hated it. Um, but it was my first day and I was in music class and they, you know, our music class at Marymount, we hadn't really been old enough to do individual things yet, but this mm-hmm. school was very small. So we were there and we had this songbook and the teacher like made us get into groups of five and then learn this like little song. And it was like, I love the flowers. I love the daffodils. I love the mountains. I love the rolling hills. Okay. And you had to like sing it. But obviously, like, you're in fifth grade and everyone's like, oh, music's just a piss take. And it was my first day, so I was like, oh, my God. So everyone else in the – and the teacher was like, you know, just put whatever you want to it. Like, you can sing it. You can make it silly. Like, whatever. So everyone at school was like, I love the mountains. I love the – and then I was like, I love the rolling hills. And everyone kind of stopped and was like, what the (laughs) fuck? And I was like, what? Were we not meant to do it like that? Right. And everyone was like, oh, you can sing. I'm like, can I sing? Is that something I can do? Weird. And then they started putting me like every single Wednesday and every single Friday that we had church, they put me as like the soloist on the microphone, which I was like, thank God, this is so boring. Otherwise, I'm so sorry to anyone religious listening, but those old school Catholic masses go forever when you're 10. Um, And then I changed schools again and I kind of like forgot about it because I just thought they were being nice because like no one else there could sing at all. So I was like, so I went back to my old school and again, it was a... Uh, we were on some kind of like retreat and I think I was 11 and they were singing this guy had a guitar and he was like you know telling us about community and love and all that fun stuff and he was pulling people up to sing and I was like not gonna volunteer because I was like there's 150 people here fuck that sure yeah um but then he played like this random old hymn and because like went to catholic school from the time I would like could even breathe and then before then my grandma would take me um, he played this really old hymn mm. and he's like, does anyone know what this song is? And I was like, me and nobody else knew. And then he's like, you have to sing it. I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> and then I got up and I sang it and the same thing happened. And everyone was like silent. So I think that was when I was like, oh, okay, well maybe I can sing. And I came home and I was like, mom, I can sing. Can I learn to play the guitar please? So I can sing. And she's like, oh shit. Okay, cool. Right. Um, so it was when I first learned, that was a very long winded explanation. Um, Yeah, and then after that, I kind of really got stuck into it, um, and I started playing gigs. I started, like, kind of doing live in front of people Mm -hmm. when I was, like, 12, turning 13, so I've been playing guitar for about a year, and I guess I started getting paid um, maybe when I was about... I started getting paid when I was about 17. Okay. I used to do a lot of free gigs before that. Um, Yeah, so about 17, and then I really committed to, like... I'd already committed that that's what I was going to do from the time I started playing guitar, so getting paid at 17 but worked towards it from the time I was 12 right. and now I'm 30. I find it I find it really interesting that a lot of rock and roll singers got their start or discovered their voice or, or at least developed their voice in church choirs. Mm. I know that one of my favorite singers Scott Weiland yeah. talked about that a lot where he, that's kind of how he got his start. He was in the choir or he was in church choir. And yep. Even one of the times as it go as the story goes that he was in prison for for one of his uh a drug arrest he put together a, a quartet mm-hmm. in prison to sing christmas carols you know and it was like him and there was like some white supremacist and there was like some <laughs> you know, mexican gangbanger and like all yeah. these people who who in the quote-unquote real world would never get along yeah. but in these this confined environment under the the premise of trying to spread some holiday joy or any joy mm-hmm. that you could gather from being in prison yeah. right they were able to sort of put their differences aside and and sort of unite 
through the power of singing. And mm-hmm. it just, it's so funny to me that the reputation that rock and roll singers have is like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, mm-hmm. like the devil and all this decadence and debauchery. But so many of them have a start in Catholic mass yep. or, you know, <laughs> choir, you know, some sort of youth choir or something along those lines, which, which makes perfect sense when yeah. you think about it. Well, it's, uh, I was always in the choir and, uh, especially in high school, like I was always the lead soloist or like one of the lead soloists, um, from the time I was about 14 when I was in eighth and ninth grade, which is like your first few years of high school. Mm-hmm. If you're not from America, um, you know, there were the senior girls who got the main spots, but then I was there and then forever it was, you know, I was very, you know, that's how I learned harmony. That's how I learned to sing in time and in tune. Um, and I really do attribute, um, I've always had a really good ear, but mm-hmm. I do attribute that to also being able to sing in like four and five part harmonies. Um, Cause some of the, you know, the modern church songs are quite easy, but sure. we used to do a lot of the old school ones. Like some of them were in Latin. Mm. Uh, a, a lot of them had like no tritones because we're Catholic, but um, you know, yeah. The, yeah, the devil's note, but like, you know, all these really weird and strange kind of notes and intervals that you would not find anywhere else so it's yeah. it's it's quite interesting um well I, th- I think that's important because i think the average person probably fancies themselves a singer in the shower or as many of us do like in their car with the radio turned way too high up so they're essentially screaming mm-hmm. it's like when you go to a concert uh and and you're hearing people sing around you they think they're in key because what they hear is the singer yeah but the person next to them hears them yeah. and they're screaming if they're mm-hmm. anywhere near the key at all. But being able to be in an organization or work with a teacher that is able to listen to your inflection and your voice and, and to push you and to not push, you know, pull you back mm-hmm. and help you discover your comfort zone, I would imagine helps build the confidence. And you mentioned you had a good ear, but help build the ear as well. Absolutely. Because um, obviously, if you have good ear, like good hearing, you can always develop your ear. Like mm-hmm. ear training is really important. Some people have it naturally and don't need to work as hard. Some people don't have it quite as much, but you know, you always have to practice. Um, I have been doing it for so long now that it's like, if, if you were not like, you know, we're sitting facing each sure, other right yeah. now. If we were in a crowded environment, say a restaurant and I had people either side of me, I would not be able to hear you. Cause I would be like my, my ears are naturally used to listening to the people oh, either side or to the back of me. That makes sense. So yeah, I'd yeah. be sitting here like looking at your lips, like desperately trying to pay attention. And all sure. I would hear is to the side and to the back. Well, even what I've found doing this podcast for, I don't know how long I've been doing this now, four years now, five years between various podcasts. I never felt like I had a good ear for sound, but because I have to listen to my voice, which I never liked, and I went, you know, I I spent a lot of years in speech therapy when I was a child, and so I sort of grew up with this sort of disdain for hearing my own voice, but because I edit these and I have to listen to them back, I've had to hear my own voice, which has then, I feel like, allowed me to have more control over my inflection Mm -hmm. as I'm talking, just because I hear it back over and over, and I hear, oh, I've muddled this or I've, um, I'm mumbling or monotone or I'm too high or I'm too low or mm-hmm. whatever, just from the constant listening week after week after week back and forth. And I would assume with the training that you've had, it's a similar thing, right? Like as you practice it and sing, and now it's been 13 plus years, mm-hmm. that, that skill is so refined to where you have a lot more mastery and control over using your voice as an instrument. Yeah, I think uh, it definitely... 
I definitely have more control over it. Like obviously sometimes like if you've been flying, for example, mm-hmm. you might be a little off because your ears are blocked. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like hearing the music and hearing where you sound in the music because um, it's very easy to, especially if you're using like headphones or something in the studio. Um, if you have your voice too loud, it's very easy to just listen to your voice and not the mm. music. And then you'll be like off. And then obviously the engineer will either make you re-sing it or they'll fix it. <laughs> Usually I get made to re-sing it because I don't really believe in fixing it unless sure. it's like absolutely necessary. Um, but yeah, you kind of learn to just hear where that music is and you can kind of pull yourself into it. Um, especially when listening to do like things like harmonies, it's really, really important to know how your voice sounds and where it's sitting because otherwise you're never going to be able to find that harmony. So like for the for the average bloke that's sitting in their car singing along to whomever, do you if if they were truly wanting to have like develop a voice, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure the sitting is not the best position to be in, but would you recommend them listening and trying to sing along to the vocals or to the music? Because it almost feels like you're saying ignore the singer if you really are trying to sing along to the music and listen to the band more than the singer, depending on your range and what have you. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like if you're learning a song, because mm-hmm. um, I always say this because, you know, whenever I do covers gigs, there's a difference between knowing knowing a song and knowing a song enough to perform it. Um, and anyone who plays an instrument will obviously tell you this, but as a singer, um, if you know a song back to front, like you know it back to front, you listen to it all the time, but you've never performed it, you'll go to perform it and be like, oh shit, wait, what the fuck? Because there's always differences. So obviously when learning, listen before you try singing it, always listen to what the singer is doing, where their inflections are mm. and what they're doing, but also listen to what the music's doing underneath them because you'll find that the mu- the the music doesn't get made second usually. Right. Like the the vocalist is always following what the music does. Um, or they're making up their own version on top and creating an entirely different melody. So when I sing, I'm not just singing and going like, well, these are what the vocals do. I'm listening to what my band is doing and I'm listening to what, specifically the drums and the bass. Right. Because usually the main melody can be, the timing can be found in the kick drum and the main melody can be found usually in the bass, um, depending on the style of music you're playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guitars, they can be a good you know, rhythm guitar can be a good way, but certain types of genres, especially if you're singing something like Tool or Perfect Circle, um, they might be doing something completely different in a different timing. And if you're not like really, really used to that song, you might find yourself being like, what? Oh shit. And really fucking it up. So I always say, listen to the music before, like when you're performing it, listen to the music and especially listen to the bass and the drum. That's at least what I do. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I was a bass player. Mm. And so... I never had a I never had an urge to play guitar. I always loved playing bass um, because I had a background playing violin, and so it came naturally to me. And I just loved the sound of a bass. This is a Keith Richards uh, quote where he says, "You know, the guitar is the rock, but the bass is the roll." Mm-hmm. And my favorite bass players are people who do play the melody, like Simon Gallup of The mm-hmm. Cure, uh, Peter Hook from Joy Division and uh, New Order, where without their bass styling. It's like you don't have a song really. Like the guitar, yeah. it's doing its thing. It's doing cool space shit. That's fine. But that that bass and of course it, it being in the lockstep with the drums is what really locks the song. And that's what makes it a good pop song mm-hmm. of sorts or rock and roll song, whatever you want to call it. And and then everything else is a layer on top of that. So it makes sense that as the vocalist, you would say like that's kind of where your your ear tends to go to, especially as you're learning a song. Yeah. 
It's, yeah, definitely. Especially um, on stage, whenever I mix my in-ears. Uh, I never ask for drums because they're loud enough anyway. I don't need them in my ears. But I'll always ask for the bass and the rhythm guitar. Like, I'll have some lead, but usually, def- if I can't hear the bass, I'll need to pop an ear out to make sure because usually every time I've ever made a mistake, it's because I can't hear the bass. Gotcha. I know other singers probably listen to other things, but just me, myself personally, um, the bass is so important. Um, that, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what... So aside from obviously doing sort of traditional hymns and kind of coming up the choir route, when was there any music, like popular music, that really influenced you at that young age? I mean, you're talking about like preteen. You're just starting to yeah. develop into womanhood and finding your own style. What were like the first early bands that, that you gravitated towards, both just, you know, as a, as a teenager finding your own identity, but also as someone who by that point has already started your progress of singing and was probably drawn towards vocalist. Um, it's really interesting because I grew up in a, in a little beach town on the Gold Coast. It was called Burley Heads. Um, and Australia, obviously now it's different because, you know, the internet. But where, you know, Australia never had very good internet when I was growing up. Like mm-hmm. when I was 12, I'm pretty sure we only just got broadband or we still had dial-up maybe. It's okay. We didn't even have internet. It didn't even exist when I was 12. So oh, okay. Well, you're way ahead of me. Good. Okay. But, um, you know, just the town that I was from, I I didn't, you know, I, being in the US, I learned so many bands that I should have known about as a mm. child. So there are bands that everyone else quotes that are like, oh my God. And you're like, oh yeah. And some of them I didn't even hear about. So please bear with me. Um. I was, my stepdad at the time introduced me to ACDC, okay. um, both singers, but I've always gravitated towards Bon Scott, um, okay. strangely. Yeah, well, I mean, national treasure, sure, um, yeah. but also just the, um, even though like maybe he's, you know, he's not a Scott Weiland, he's not a Chris Cornell, but he's in his own way because of his attitude and yeah. his charisma in the voice. Like you listen to Bon Scott sing. And it's just like, you're like, tell me more. I want to hear more of this story. Like he was a real storyteller. So I, I really gravitated towards that. Um, and it's distinct. It's very distinct. Like you can very much, you can very yeah. easy tell the difference between Brian's, uh, Brian Johnson and, and Bon, Scott. bon Scott. Like yeah. there's no, and it's not just the type of voice they have, but it is, like you said, it's their yeah. style. He's got uh, what we call vocal charisma. Mm-hmm. And I always gravitated to singers like that. Um, when I was on my 12th birthday, so 2003, uh, Evanescence had just released their okay. first ever record, Fallen, mm-hmm. um, and I had a voucher because we still went to we still had CD stores. <laughs> uh, I had a gift card that my nana, I think, had mm-hmm. given me to shop at like the the CD store, whatever it was at the time. So I went, we went there with my nana, my little nana, and her like coming into Sony, <laughs> and, and like, and I'm buying this like goth operatic rock record, and I had no idea what I was listening to because I'd only just heard the single on the radio. And I had my Walkman and I lay down on my Nana's bed when we got back and I like put in my headphones. I was like, okay, let's get ready. Cause you, and then I listened to it and I was in that room for like the rest of the night. I just remember hearing her voice and just going like, it was a life changing moment for me. I just went, holy shit. What is this? I've never heard anyone like this before. I've never heard a voice like this. I've never heard music like this. These lyrics, it speaks to me. I want to be her. Right. Like Amy Lee was such a huge thing. Um, from there, I obviously went on to discover Janis Joplin. Uh, again, vocal charisma, just any kind of vocalist that has that emotion in their voice. I'm not interested in, I mean, no offense, I'm not going to name any names, but I'm not interested in a voice that can be replicated by anyone down the sure. street. Like, okay, cool, you have an eight fucking octave range. That's amazing. I don't have that, but 
I know four other people that sound exactly the same as this singer. Sure. Like it's whatever's on the radio, it all sounds the same. I'm interested in a singer that I listen to and be like, wow, who hurt you? Like, mm, yeah. you know, like Chris Cornell, like his yeah. voice was just, that's... There's passion that comes out there. There's passion and there's, it's just something that, yeah, it's like an added extra because it's always wonderful listening to people who are absolutely incredible singers but to listen to people who are incredible singers that have that story to their voice that you just want to hear everything that they do, I think is um, is something like Grace Slick mm-hmm. from Jefferson Airplane was another one. Um, I always loved Joan Jett. I thought she had a really interesting yeah. voice. Um, Talk about vocal uh, charisma. Yeah. Just tons of it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and then once I you know started to hear more, because, um, you know, we didn't get very much... LimeWire didn't come into play until I was 15. Sure, yeah. So that was like a whole... I loved Missy Higgins. She was an Australian singer-songwriter. Lots of piano-based mm-hmm. tracks and um, acoustic guitar. She was a huge influence. She released an album called The Sound of White when I was in eighth grade, 13. That was just forever. Like, I bought the songbook and the, the music for it, and I would, like, sit at home and read all the music and learn it on guitar and a little bit on piano, although I suck at piano, so it wasn't ever really... <laughs> I used to... I had a friend that was a very good pianist. I was like, can you please play this? And she must have been so sick of me. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's kind of where... And then, you know, coming to L.A., there was a whole new group of music that I just discovered because it just wasn't available to me where sure. I came from. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's funny... You, I have the same sort of ACDC connection, except mine was, it wasn't an album I bought myself, I don't think, but I do think it was one of the first albums I requested, like mm-hmm. CDs, when CDs were popular, was um, Back in Black. Oh, Back in Black, okay. It just had a cool cover. It was yeah. simple, but there was something about that that, that stood out to me. Yeah. And um, I don't know how old I was, maybe 12 or 11 or something, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. And the, But I do remember the first CD I bought myself, and it was... Um, Smashing Pumpkins, Infinite ah. Sadness. Not the same vocal sort of um, melody that Amy Lee would have. No, but, but he's great. Vocal charisma. But from a, yes, vocal charisma. And from a from a sonic you know perspective, I mean, just like sweeping landscapes and ranging from angry songs to these like beautiful, sad, melancholy mm-hmm. melodies. I mean, it was just like, sometimes music can have that effect. The best kind of music can yeah. have that effect where it just takes you on a journey. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, you'll just sit there and listen to it yeah. front to back and and be in that world mm-hmm. for a little while. Be transfixed yeah. into whatever, especially with a vocalist that puts a lot of their own passion into it. Oh, yeah. Be transfixed into whatever their world is, both good and bad. You're like along for the mm-hmm. ride. Pink Floyd is another one. that's I, I actually learned about them quite early because my mom loved Pink Floyd. And she requested, she's like, I love Dark Side of the Moon. It's my favorite album. And me being like, 11 or some shit had no idea I was like oh what a, okay so I bought her this album she's like oh my god I'm like cool 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 story and I bought it like the wall DVD and then when people you know I started listening to it I was like oh yeah and like even now sometimes I I remember I showed my showed my boyfriend in Sweden and he was like this is terrifying I was like isn't it though <laughs> it's great I think I think uh, I was very lucky my dad is a big music lover mm-hmm. and I don't remember the age but I was too young we went to go see. They did a. They used to do a, a Pink Floyd laser show. Oh. So so they used to do the laser show to the wall. Mm-hmm. But I don't I, remember when you might have been a little too young to remember. But when when everyone was hyping on the whole Dark Side of the Moon. Oh God! I I mean I feel like people have always hyped on it. So you might have to be. More no, specific. I think it was like in the nineties. Somewhere around the nineties. I was born when, in ninety one. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sometime in the nineties, yeah. someone made the the correlation that. Um, 
uh, sorry, Dark Side of the Moon matched up with uh, the Wizard of Oz. Oh yes, 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 and it does to form the Dark Side of the Rainbow. I was talking about this with um, Steve Falazzo, who runs Soundcheck Live, like literally yeah. a week ago. Have you ever watched it? I haven't watched it together because I just feel like that's a journey I need to go on with adult supervision. <laughs> so if we, if they, I don't know if they, st- I'm sure they still do it. They so in in my small town in Texas. They used to always do the laser show to the wall, mm-hmm. um, but then when that whole thing sort of erupted, they added to the event, and it was called Dark Side of the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. And they would they would do um, the synced up for an audience. Uh-huh. They would do the synced up thing with the visuals, <sighs> so you could watch the clips of the movie along with the, the band that was playing along to it. I think it was a band. Oh no, no, God. it was just music with lasers, yeah. right? Um, this was the first time I ever knew what pot smelt like, although I had no idea. <laughs> I just looked around to this cloud of smoke that billowed up from the audience <laughs> and I asked my dad what that was and he just told me not to worry about it. He's like, oh, nothing, nothing, yeah. son. Yeah, yeah, and then, and, then they, and then after the dark side of the rainbow was done, they would launch into the wall and that was kind of the, that, my early Pink mm-hmm. Floyd experience. So um, I was very fortunate in that way that I was able to get, ex- get experience to stuff that was of a generation mm-hmm. before me because dad has always been a big music fan. Yeah. He's still, he's talking about going to Metallica recently so yeah. like we're gonna go see the eagles when oh, my that's dad's right, here yeah. yeah he's way into that stuff still yeah. um you moved to america yes right you're 20 you said right i was 22 22 yeah 22 turning 23 okay so you're so I was young five years or so in from your first paying gig around the yeah, time you first five or six paid. yeah and you form evil walks yes well, you now that was a band that existed in Australia no. in some capacity or not well name only I had no I had a different band so when I was about 14 maybe I was wrong maybe I started getting paid at 15 I don't know it was a long time ago sure. um yeah no I had a different band it, I started it as a solo project when I was like 13 or 14 I called it Lily Rouge okay uh name meant like my family as a nickname calls mm-hmm. calls me Lily or okay. Lil mm-hmm. um and then Rouge cuz I even though my hair's dyed red, I'm actually naturally a redhead. Gotcha. Um, so, which is why I'm now like pure white if I don't dye my hair. <laughs> but that's something I'm not ready to face yet. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> you, you, it's just, it, that's a secret between you, myself, and, and anyone, anyone who listening. Listens to the yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we did that, and it started off as like a solo acoustic thing, and the acoustic stuff was very like kind of Celtic influenced. It was okay. a lot of six eight stuff, a lot of weird time signatures. I had no idea what I was doing, but I have the old recordings. Like I was in studios from the time I was about 13. Um, and then it kind of morphed into like a rock project. And then it went into like a weird goth rock thing. I don't okay. know what it was. Evanescence it was maybe influenced. Very, very. And Marilyn Manson, Evanescence influenced, um, Kind of like, I thought I was edgy, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, And then I moved here. uh, I was invited to be here, actually, um, because a company called A&R Worldwide, um, who runs a a discovery program called Muse Expo, Mm -hmm. they found me on YouTube. Mm. And they were like, hey, this is a... Do you guys, like, who writes the music? We'd be interested. So they brought me over here, and they teamed me up with a guy named Victor Murgatroyd. Victor Murgatroyd had been the A&R guy who discovered Evanescence. And he actually worked with Evanescence on Fallen, and he is a big part of why the record sounded the way it did. Um, Or at least, yeah, that's what I was told. Um, I always preface this by this, but yeah. Sure. So he um, started working with me and listened to the stuff. He's like, look, it's cool, but... It's not really going to work in LA as it is. And I, I agreed. I'd had that name since I was 13. Right. I was like, you know, nine years later, I was feel, like, I always got a little bit cringe when I listened to like, I'm Lily Rouge. I'm like, oh, fuck. Why? <laughs> why did I pick this? But um, 
Yeah, no, I, so I came here and I was like, you know, looked to like tear away some of the production, um, make it like more raw, more, Mm. more grown up, more, uh, sitting in line with where I was as a person at the time. And then I was trying to figure out a band name and my manager at the time, Victor said, why don't you look at a song name? Like, that's a cool way to find a band name. I was like, oh, sick. So I was like, I love ACDC. So I started going through songs and I am a Bon Scott fan. Mm-hmm. Like I'm absolutely Bon Scott fan, but there is a Brian Johnson song called Evil Walks, mm-hmm. but it's spelt like Evil Walks and it's about this like dream. traditional way, right? Yeah. It's, and it's like about this like evil woman with auburn hair and green eyes and all of this stuff. And I was like, well, that's great. Let's do Evil Walks. That's kind of cool. And he's like, yeah, but you're not, I know you, you're not really evil. Like let's, let's change it a little bit. I was like, okay. He's like, what about like love or something? And I was like, oh, like E-V-O-L, like love backwards or short for evolution. I was like, that's fucking sick let's do that and that kind of uh kind of how it became that nice and how would you obviously you stripped away some of the more um symphonic aspects mm. of maybe your prior project but if somewhere were to if you're if you're doing the elevator pitch for what evil walks is now how do you describe the music i mean clearly it's evolved but like as far as you're presenting your band as it is right this moment I'd say it's like uh, it's it's like hard, heavy rock and roll. It's at the moment, it's very '90s influenced. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like uh, the '90 like '90s grunge meets Black Sabbath with a female lead vocalist. Okay, that's kind of where we're sitting. Whereas when it started, it was like if ACDC was run by a chick. Gotcha. So it's definitely evolved and it become darker. Like the. Yeah, it's gone from like party rock where I was literally just partying all the time to being like much more mature and like, I don't know. I think the new stuff as well is very 90s and very dark. It seems like the more sober I become, the more depressed I come. I'm, I'm not sure, in my music at least. Well, I was going to say, I wonder if, um, I mean, I, I've not had that kind of addiction in my life, but it, what I do know based on people I know and and um, even myself, even, even if the, I haven't fallen into addiction sort of classification mm-hmm. what i've done with alcohol and, and other things such as that is that it can kind of mask yes a lot of your your deeper internal feelings mm-hmm. um i know that people like we had this discussion a couple of days ago where mm-hmm. talked about whether or not one could write and i used to even when i played bass i i would write almost all the lyrics for my previous bands mm-hmm. and i could never write drunk or if i did i would the next morning realize why i'd never should write drunk <laughs> Um, and, and it's funny that you mentioned Marilyn Manson because one of the bands that I tend to listen to a lot mm-hmm. when I write lyrics is either um, music with no vocals or Marilyn Manson mm-hmm. just because there's so much emotion yeah and he's a great lyricist and it would make sense that as you've moved into sobriety for two years now just yeah just over two years yeah that you would be more in tuned with some of that nuance in your own emotions and also probably I mean I don't want to speak for you but, but I would assume that there'd be um a a courage to present and reveal some of the emotions that maybe otherwise you might have glossed over or, or tucked away into a dark corner yeah. and and now you feel more comfortable expressing absolutely um i think i've always been someone who's re- like really covered or repressed my emotions um you know ever since i was a little ch- a little girl and i think like my parents did divorce when i was quite young and i was always and you know i've 
and I say all of this, like my parents and I have a fantastic relationship, so it's absolutely no problem that I talk about this. Um, but you know, I was always making both sides happy because, you know, whenever there is a divorce, mm-hmm. it's never, it's never pretty. Like I have yeah. met people who have fine divorces, but I don't I, like, that was not my family. That's not my experience either. No. So, you know, I was, you know, from the time I was about five or six, um, I've always been like a people pleaser, which is something I identified when working the steps. And so I was always trying to be happy for both sides when maybe inside I wasn't. And I carried that behavior on until I was an adult. And it was one of the things that like pretty much almost destroyed my life. Mm. Um, and, but bearing that I've always been embarrassed of my emotions. I've never wanted to share them. My mum always said to me, like, she knows me best in the world, but she's always said like, you know, Leah, no one knows what's going on in your head. Like you never tell people it's really difficult. Um, and she'd always use it when like, say if I was attracted to someone, she's like, Oh, you don't even like them. I was like, yeah, I really like them. She's like, what? You appear indifferent. I was like, Oh yeah. So I think becoming like, sober has helped me and working the steps has helped me really identify that it's okay to feel things and it's Mm -hmm. okay to express like I'm not a robot and it was very scary and sharing it like I I used to go into interviews where people would ask me about my lyrics and I would just be like whatever you think it is can we move on fuck you (laughs) whereas now I'm like happy to talk about it so I think that's had a really positive impact on my writing so like some things are a little depressing and they are a little dark or some things are fun but it's, I think my music has moved past just like, yeah, we're getting drunk and partying and this dude hurt me. Like, I feel like it's, there's so many more layers and nuances. And and do you feel like having, because again, I, I'm, a, I'm a product of, of divorce as well. And um, I've maybe had the opposite reaction of you. Well, I, I less was a people pleaser and I was more of a, just an introvert. Mm. I just went into my own shell. And you could argue that I'm still in many regards in that way. But for you, who sort of adapted to this broken family, and, and I, I think people sometimes when we talk about divorce and family, we always have to give the caveat that like mm. the, both parents are lovely, right? But sometimes just the act of it alone can be traumatic, oftentimes mm. can be traumatic. And for you, it seems like you adapted by sort of a, a appropriating sort of a people pleaser and an entertainer mm. personality. Do you feel like the way you approach lyrics with that, having before you started doing the steps, was to write lyrics that were um, from the perspective of trying to please everyone and not write anything that might be controversial or difficult to understand or um, whatever it may be, but, but to write stuff that would be easily digestible and entertaining and more, more have more of a pop sensibility? Um, I definitely think anything that I wrote when I was looking to release it, um, I definitely put a little bit of a... like a gloss over it because mm-hmm. I was mostly concerned what my mother might say. I see. Yeah. Um, there was a period, uh, I think 2011, September, 2011 through until maybe 2013 when I was working with uh, a producer in Brisbane named Stuart Stewart. He did a lot of the Lily Rouge stuff. I uh-huh. was, I was going through some really bad shit. Um, I had been through like just this horrific breakup. I mean, me and that person have like, you know, we've just years and years later, we actually like, we've worked it all out. It's fine. But that caused a lot of damage that Mm -hmm. was kind of irreparable. Um, we're cool now, but like, he he fucked my shit up. Like, and I was going through like massive alcohol, like massive depressions that I masked with alcohol. I was hospitalized twice in that year. Um, and I was writing a lot of really dark stuff and I did, I have one of the songs still that I never really released. And 
my mum called me at one point and she was like almost in tears. She's like, is this how you really feel? And I was like, no, it's just, a, it's just a, like, cause I couldn't say it. You gotta and, put the mask back on. Yeah. And like, listen, I was even listening to it. Um, I was even listening to it the other, the other week and I was like, holy shit. Like, this is fucking brutal. Like the song was called love from a bottle <laughs> and like the, the lyrics are like, um, yeah. I don't know. They, they're just really fucked up. And I was like, Jesus Christ, if this isn't like, uh, and you know, in Australian society, sobriety is not a common thing. Mm. It doesn't have the support network that somewhere in like, you know, Los Angeles would have. If I'd have written that song and put it out anywhere, I would have had so many people reach out to me in LA and be like, Hey, are you okay? Do you need right. help? Whereas in a, you know, aside from my mum, everyone was like, Oh yeah. Blah, blah. So yeah, I think after I got that reaction, I was much more careful uh, whereas now, um, I'm not that dark anymore because obviously it's sober <laughs> and really happy. So that also helps. And older, right? Much there's, older. There's a freedom that comes with aging yeah. that just inevitably, I mean, hopefully it's, yeah. it's, it is something you have to work towards, but yeah. as I have found, as you get older, you just give less fucks. Yeah. I was like, I was 19, just turned 20. So this is 10 years ago now, 11. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Literally 10 years ago now. Um, so if I ever write lyrics that I feel might be a problem, um, you know, I'm not worried about what people are going to say because a fuck them and B the only person I really do care about would be my family or, sure. or my partner. And I think they know me that I'm not going to go jump off a bridge. Whereas when I was 20, I was very scarily close to doing some serious harm multiple times. Sure. So, yeah. That, that, that unfortunately is a, um, I mean, it's a bad combination. Mm-hmm. I think when we're young, we take breakups regardless of the, the traumaticness of mm. the relationship itself, we just generally take breakups harder yeah. at that age because everything seems infinite. Yes. You know, um, whereas when you get older and you've been through 30 breakups, you're like, yeah. oh, another one bites the dust. Oh yeah. Um, and then you add in your hormones at the time and mm-hmm. most people, um, you know, they over, overindulge in alcohol. I mean, yeah. I, I, part of the reason why I was straight edge for five years was because it was during that time frame, 18 to yeah. 22 or whatever it is, 23. And I knew myself, I was probably in a very similar position emotionally that you were at that age. And luckily I had fallen with and had met mm-hmm. some folks that were straight edge. And so, and I'd come across minor threat and things of that nature. And so I thought, you know what? I, I, can, see, I can see where my ship is sailing and I can either go to the left or the right but if I go to the right, there's a lot of rocks on that path yeah. and I can recognize that in myself. If I go to the left, um, I might catch some flack from the world, but but I'm not going to hop off Absolutely. hop off a bridge or anything like that. So yeah. it's a tough time period. And, and especially I would f- imagine as a creative person, uh, when your emotions are so raw and like that's how, mm-hmm. that is part of what makes you a creative person is being able to put your emotions on display. Yeah. That it's, uh, it's in the forefront. If you're working in a steel mill, you mm-hmm. might be able to repress it further, but as yeah. it stands like you're sharing yourself with the world in a way yeah I think it's definitely like the creative personality I think um and I I do and maybe I'm just more aware of it now but I do notice like just overall as a society we've become much more accepting of mental illnesses uh the conversation is very much more open than it was when I was younger um if someone was struggling or behaving crazily like back in the day it was like ah, oh, have some shots um mm. you know and I think I, and I can only speak for myself, but it wasn't just like a breakup that I was dealing with. There was some severe trauma mm-hmm. that happened around those times that, you know, still didn't really know how to deal with, didn't know how to talk to anyone. As mentioned, like I was so scared of my emotions. 
um, that I didn't think there was anyone I could reach out to. And so that comes out, I'm a, I'm someone who does self-destruct and does self-sabotage, which I don't mm. anymore. Thank God. Like I think about it. I'm like, no, we're sober. We've got to be adults, Leah. Talk right. about it. <laughs> you know, just pick up the fucking phone. Whereas back then it's like, I'm going to fuck it all up. Ah! So I think it's, yeah, I think in those early 20s, there are so many people recovering from things that maybe they didn't have control over in their childhood or maybe they're becoming an adult and they make some decisions that aren't good for them and they're not able to really come to terms with that because even even in late teens and early 20s, you know, you're still kind of very childlike. Not sure. not child like not a child, mm-hmm. like I don't want to infantilize, you but know. But you're still a young adult and you're still developing yeah. and you're at a it, like I said, it's a it's a complex crossroads that we it's all go through. It's a tender age, yeah. as they say. <laughs> but yeah, it's at least yeah for me. I think if if society had been more um, ex- and I you know I was diagnosed with depression in 2015, um, and it made a lot of sense because as a teenager, I I just thought it was hormones. I was always up, or I was my my lows are so low, like they're so dark, mm-hmm. and my highs are so high, and I just thought everyone felt like that. And then as I got older and older and older, I still felt like that. And I was like, well, maybe it's not that I'm a teenager. <laughs> well, and, and like you said, I think society has moved to be more accepting of mm. mental health. And wherein I feel like, I mean, even when I was of that age, right, I got mm-hmm. diagnosed with panic disorder around the same time mm-hmm. and probably depression, but they didn't give me that on the script. But back then it was like, there was a, there were, at least for me, there was like the idea of rejecting that because you didn't want anything to be wrong with yourself. Whereas fast forward 20 years, I was just thinking the other day, you know, maybe it would be worthwhile because I've seen like hypnotherapists and things of that nature, but it might be worthwhile to get like a checkup. Mm -hmm. It's been 20 years since I've been diagnosed with anything and not from the perspective of trying to label myself with anything, but just to have a further and deeper understanding of my inclinations and um, some of the and to project my actions and mm-hmm. to have a better understanding of how to adjust within that, right? Yeah. Like if you had a uh, a physical ailment that you had mm-hmm. to work around, if you had a bad knee, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a negative reflection of yourself. You would just understand that you have to adjust accordingly. Yeah. And I and I would like to believe that that is the way that we are starting to treat mental health mm-hmm. um, and and also addiction, right? Yeah. In, in less of a judgmental way, but more of a, from the perspective of the more you know about yourself, mm-hmm. the more that, the more you know your inclinations and your habits and um, where you lean on an emotional spectrum, mm-hmm. the more you're able to then acclimate to that and, and adjust yourself well in, yeah. in the rest of the world. Because at the end of the day, the world's not going to help you out. No. You really kind of have to help yourself out. So... I think that's a good segue into talking about the 12 steps mm-hmm. because you, like we mentioned earlier, you've been, you've been sober for uh, two years now. Yep. Almost exactly, right? You just celebrated yeah, two years. Yeah, I, I, about I'm about to celebrate two years and one month. So, with, you know, we don't have to get into like the moment that you decided, but I really, I'm, I've always been sort of fascinated with the 12 steps. Um, when I was growing up, the 12 steps and alcoholism and, and Alcoholic Anonymous sort of was like a thing you saw on TV or like, mm-hmm. like my uncle was an alcoholic. Um, and he was just a fun uncle. I didn't even realize he was an alcoholic yeah. until very much later. Um, and then, and then, I, and then I lost him very shortly thereafter. Right. And so it was just a thing that was somewhere else, but as I've gotten older and as I've come to read a little bit about it and know other people who are in the program, it seems based on what I've been able to read that it's actually 
something that probably should be applied to most people, if not all people. It does really feel like like general life steps. I mean, within the context of how it's written, of course, it's it's yeah. specified towards alcoholism or drug use or sex addiction or whatever. But if you remove that and you just sort of use it as a, as a general guide, it feels like a pathway to empowerment that most, if not all, people would benefit from. I mean, is that your experience or? Absolutely. I am. Um, you know, I was like coming from Australia as well. Um, I did have an uncle who did Alcoholics Anonymous um, when he was younger. He obviously like has a drink every now and then, but um, in his mind, he decided that, you know, he, he very much ascribed to the notion that, you know, AA says over here, it's not how much you drink, it's the effect that alcohol has on mm-hmm. you and if it makes a negative impact on your life. Because um, you know most people think of Alcoholics Anonymous and they think it's a bunch of a bunch of drunks who fall who sleep in the gutter and have sure. lost their homes and you know drink nail polish remover, which you know that is a definition of some type of alcoholics. But you know most alcoholics in our society are functioning alcoholics mm-hmm. or ones that maybe aren't functioning, but they're still able to like kind of hold their shit together. And I think that's the scariest alcoholic because they're the ones who need the most help. That's what sure. I was, um, and I can't speak for anyone else, but I'm just saying. Um, so looking at the steps, I was always thinking like, oh God, it's too... And I did go to Catholic school. I'm technically Catholic, but um, organized religion is something that I try and stay away from. I do believe there is a higher power. And in order to kind of, you know, I think you have to believe in something bigger than you um, because ultimately like anyway, but that that is kind of part of it. But I think if you take all of the stuff away, especially the negative connotation of the steps, um, you know, they are fantastic for personal development. Mm-hmm. Um, you do work them with a partner or a sponsor mm-hmm. um, because you could try and work them by yourself and there are certain ones that do work, but it does require a certain amount of personal accountability and it does require a certain amount of introspection and a lot of people can't do it on their own. I know I, I for one, um, when it came to the fourth and the fifth steps, I kind of went on strike for about six months because I was like, this is fucking bullshit. Fuck this. Like, I can be sober and I don't need to do this. Like, fuck this shit. And my sponsor was like, okay, what are you having problems with? And I talked to her about what it was. Um, the fourth and the fifth steps, essentially, it's that's where they're like kind of the most, I think, the ones where I found the most development. And that's the fourth step is where you find everyone that you have um, a resentment against. They use mm-hmm. the word resentment. Um, and it's, you know, it could be something as small as, you know, oh, the person who pushed in front of me at the Starbucks line, which is very basic. But it's also like, oh, someone who maybe they abused you. Maybe they stole money from you. Maybe they talked down to Like, you know, it's it's anyone who's caused you harm, mm-hmm. essentially, or you perceive has caused you harm. So you get to list all that. And that feels really good because you're like, sure. yeah, fuck you. Yeah, you're the reason I'm hurt. Fuck you. Right. And you get to, sorry for my... Ex- oh, I curse ex- a lot. Okay. Um, and then you have to figure out what category they fall into. So it might be something like it affects your personal relationship. It uh, affects your financial security. It might affect your self-esteem. It might affect your sexual relationships. It might affect your pride, something like that. Once you've identified all that, feels pretty good because you're like, yeah, you hurt me and you did... Because you have to write out exactly sure. what they did. You can't just write, was a dick. Right. Like, you have to write, this person was a dick because they did this and... But, like, it could be pages. And my sponsor was like, no, you have to do, like, a legit one. Like, I had literally half a notebook full of shit. And then once you've done that, you feel really good. And then you have to find your part in that. And Mm. that's the part that I was like, no, this is bullshit. And my sponsor explained it to me as, and I think this is where the most growth happened. It's like, look, 
we're not, it's, it's not trying to say that you find yourself fault in this. Some things are definitely not your fault, Mm -hmm. but there is a part that unfortunately everyone plays. And sometimes it might be, you had unrealistic expectations of a person. Sometimes you were just trying to people please. And that put you in the situation. And it's a really hard pill to swallow. And I, you know, there's some things that you're like, how is this my fault? Like, there is no way this is my fault. And that's why it's really difficult to find your part in it because it's so easy to confuse your part with your fault. Yeah. Um, and that's, but once I finished that and I was able to identify it all and I just felt this like euphoric sense of release. Sure. Um, it was almost like spiritual to a point. Um, and then after that, it's obviously, you know, there are other steps involved that I've obviously worked, but that one especially has been the one that's really been like, wow. Um, and it's, it really helps you to step out of your ego. And I think taking away the addiction, taking away the, you know, I guess negative stigma of having like a 12 step program. I think it's something that everyone could definitely use not even just to be like, oh, I have a problem, just to be like, wow, I'm really cranky today. Why am I cranky? Oh, so-and-so did this to me. Well, what? why did that make me cranky? It affected this. Okay, what was my part in that? Oh, okay, I see now. Like, Yeah, and I, I feel like, so like in magic, <clears throat> that those four and five steps would, in my opinion, sort of fall in the category of shadow work. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's exactly that. It's that, shadow work. That, that people talk about often, especially online, but... Mm-hmm. but I mean, look, I don't want to judge what people do or do not do, but when you see their actions afterward, you feel mm. like it doesn't, it, it's hard for you to kind of come to terms with the fact that they're doing that and then they just do the same behaviors yes. over and over again. And not just people in magic, people in all forms. Like Christians go to church mm-hmm. and they pray and they go to, or like I was raised Catholic as well, they go to confession and then they, the moment they step out of confession, they just go right back to their old habits. Yeah. And I think that the, the part that seems to be lost for most people is that fifth step. Yes. It's the finding what your role was in each of these things. And that's something I've been trying to work on really lately a lot. But but especially when I, I guess it was two, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, when mm-hmm. I went through hypnotherapy, we did a very similar exercise where I, I addressed certain things from my past and my family and things of that nature and and why there might be certain anger. And, and for me, one of the things that I have is I'm, I get very easily disappointed in people. People mm-hmm. fail to meet my expectations and then I just block them out. Yeah. And I get very resentful, resentful towards folks for those reasons. And um, it's something I'm just going to always have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that does help is recognize that you have a role to play in the scenario. Mm-hmm. Even if someone, like you said, did something to you that is not your fault, you still react to it. You still carry it. You still um, allow it to affect you to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. There's something that you can control. And I would imagine for you that's empowering once you discover that part in it that you can yes. control because you might not be control if someone cut you off on the freeway you can't control that no but you can control your reaction to it the reaction do you flip them the bird do you flip them the peace sign do you react not at all do you and i'm guilty of this do you speed up and get up on their ass mm. do you you know, one time I'm uh, I'm ashamed to say someone cut me off, and I opened the little tray next to my door that has all my loose change, and I grabbed a handful of pennies and I chucked it at their car. <laughs> Not the most responsible. No, that wasn't responsible. <laughs> but at the same time, that is how I reacted in the yes. moment. But that's okay. But I know that now, and that yeah. was many years ago, and I will hopefully not do that again. But it's I feel I when I look at the landscape of society Mm -hmm. right now what i see is a lot of folks who have pinpointed the fourth step 
they've pinpointed people who have done harm to them, either literally or perceived mm-hmm. or whatever. But they they just gloss over that fifth step. Yeah. And um and they're stubborn about it. And they they revel in the negativity and the anger and the frustration and the toxicity and the general shittiness and the cattiness and all that negativity stuff. And I especially like in like magic communities, I see this a lot, like, oh, you're too focused on the light, you're too focused on, you know, live, laugh, pray, all that jazz. But at the same time, I feel like sometimes people fail to take accountability for their role. And they cling to negativity like an emo kid clinging mm. to his journal, right? <laughs> and I know because I was that emo yeah. kid who clung to my sadness for years and years and years, you know, who would listen to sad music and wallow in my self-pity. And it's like a, it's like a warm, wet blanket yeah. that you sort of surround yourself with. And, and they make all the excuses in the world as to why they need to hold on to that. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like through working through the steps... If you can, if you can confront your role and your culpability and accountability in any given scenario that you feel has mm-hmm. done harm to you, what you're saying is it's actually release releases that for you. It is. It definitely releases it. Like obviously, there like they talk about justifiable anger, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's a lot of things like you are allowed to be angry about things. It's not about like oh, I'm a Zen master and I don't get angry. Like, because that's bullshit. We're humans. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the program does say, like, we are not saints. Like, the we, we are humans. We make mistakes. We make errors. Um, and certain things like, yeah, there is justifiable anger. If someone's really, really hurt you, of course you can be angry about it. It's not about that. But at some point, it's more about, like, this anger will eat at you and mm-hmm. it will become a problem. And maybe it's, you know, a lot of the things I was angry about, I was justifiably angry about. There wasn't a lot on my list. You know, when I went through it with my sponsor, she was like, yeah, there's, I can absolutely see why you used to drink. Fuck. Yeah. I was like, thank you. But she's like, but that's not an excuse anymore. It's like when you're, uh, they, they bring up this thing in meetings a lot. And it's like, look, especially if you had a lot of problems in your childhood and your adolescence, If you're 21 and 22 and you're fucking around like, oh yeah, I had a shit childhood, whatever. It's like, okay, yeah, absolutely. But if you're 30 and 35 and you're still blaming what happened in your childhood for like what's going on with you now and you haven't made an attempt to fix it, that's when people start being like, okay. Yeah. Because at some point, I mean, and it's very easy for me to say because obviously I'm very privileged. I live in Los Angeles. Um, You know, I do, it's very different for me. Uh, you know, I am from like a middle-class background, et cetera, et cetera. So I do understand that there is a lot that goes into this that maybe other people don't have the opportunity for. And I do acknowledge that. Um, cause you know, it's very easy. I'm sure it would be very frustrating to listen to him, to hear me say this and be coming from a different background and be like, what the fuck does she know? But, but oh, sorry. But in my experience, like I've, I've really worked on trying to get rid of my justifiable anger just for me because if I don't forgive the people that hurt me I'm going to carry it around forever and I'm going to be miserable and I deserve to be happy everyone deserves the chance to be happy and if you can't find the things that upset you and find a way to settle them or make it like you're not ever going to get closure for some things but Mm -hmm. you can make your own closure um and later on in the steps um you know I finished them a while ago so I think it's the eighth or the ninth step you know you still should be taking a personal inventory every day. Mm-hmm. That's what we call like you take inventory in the fourth step. It's like, okay, today I'm upset about this. This is why. Okay, why is that? You write down everything for the day and you can do it every day to try and just release because every person is deserving of happiness. And if you can't ignore, like if you can't get those fourth and fifth steps down, you might struggle to be happy because you're going to be carrying around all that negativity. 
And at the end of the day, it's, it's for you that you have to forgive these people. Well, and there's two things that really stood out to me with what you said. Number one, I, when I, again, when I look around, especially like on social media, for example, there seems to be currency in airing your trauma. Mm. On the one hand, I could see why that would be liberating. On the other hand, I don't know that it's the best arena for it. Um, I, I was talking to someone who once um, experienced a younger person telling them that they had wished that they had more trauma oh. so that they could express it online. How nice of them. Right. How... But, but, that's a, <laughs> but that's like a byproduct of, the, of how we're training yeah. folks. Because if, like I said, everyone kind of is, is, is kind of stuck on that fourth step. They're, they're, they're happy to take stock of everyone who did harm to them. Yeah. And, and what comes from that is they post it, right? So-and-so did this to me, or so-and-so is my abuser, or so-and-so, whatever. Mm-hmm. And of course, you'll get, bum- you'll get love-bombed, right? By all the people online who are going to tell you like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, blah, 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 blah. I, I, I assume that on the short term, that's, that's nice, and maybe even it's helpful, you know, just to get over a hump. But it also feels like you can get... In the same way that you can get addicted to anything else, you can get addicted to the love bombing online. Mm-hmm. You can get addicted to the constant um, pats on the back and sympathy that you might not be getting in the real world. And so people have fixated on that aspect of it without mm-hmm. going to that next step of saying, okay, but what do I do about it? Mm-hmm. Or what role did I play in it? And there's another thing that you said that's somewhat similar to something that I've always said, which is that whenever you say something, you hear it twice. So if I say, if I look in the mirror and I say, man, you're really let yourself go. You've really gotten out of shape, right? I've thought it and therefore I've kind of heard it. And then I spoke it, which means I've literally heard it. Mm -hmm. So I'm reinforcing everything I speak once, twice, right? So anything that you focus on, if you're like, focus on traffic, how bad traffic is, you're just just doubling down every time you speak at one time. Mm And I feel like when what you were saying about uh, holding on to anger and hate sort of eating you up is mm-hmm. a bit like that as well. If someone punches me in the face, they've hurt me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was once jumped uh, by eight guys, for example, and they all hurt me, right? I had eight people punching me. That sucks. It was uh, for no reason. There was no solicitation on my part toward this violence. It's just one of those bad luck occurrences. But if I hold on to it, then they're still hurting me, right? Like they'll hurt me for as long as I hold on to it. And I wouldn't ever want to empower someone who would do me harm by allowing them to hurt me for years upon years Mm -hmm. upon years. Um, And I don't think that that's a negative thing, but it does feel like in our modern society, the idea of, I don't know if letting go is the right term, but coming to terms maybe? Yeah, coming to terms. You mentioned like finding closure of some sort. I do feel like that should be promoted more. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to forgive. I, I, I would assume that the steps don't don't prohibit you from blocking oh, negative influences out of your life, right? No, you. I, when I say forgive, like I, I, there have been some people in, uh, in my fourth step that I definitely have forgiven and we've had a conversation about it. But there are definitely some people in that fourth step, like I forgive them for myself, but that doesn't mean that I like ever want anything to do with them again and they're definitely absolutely removed from my life um i i can the it's a very interesting phenomenon with the airing of trauma and events on social media uh i think 
I think it's different strokes for different folks. Um, but especially like some, for some people, like I've, there are sometimes like people do need that and they need that support because maybe they don't receive it at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- but I think it's when you get these people that are constantly, and again, it's so hard to speak because everyone's trauma is personal. And it's like, I, I would never want to be one to judge someone for how they're coping, but if they're doing it to the point where it's like every single day there's something new and they're not addressing it, then I think that's something that, you know, it can be quite damaging and you're right. It's maybe it is that addiction, but then it's just so hard because, you know, sometimes online is the only space for some people where they can actually feel like they're loved, which is so sad. I think that's a, that's a super failing of the society that we live in. I think that we've destroyed Especially as we get older, right? Mm-hmm. Because like when you're younger, you have school and then maybe you go to college and yeah. you do that. And maybe the first few years of your work history, you're mm-hmm. like, you hang out with your pals. But at a certain point, 25, 30 and older, the organizations that used to provide that sense of actual community, not like the shit that passes for online, but like yeah. real connection, it seems like that's gone the way of the, of the Buffalo and, and you know, just like your sponsor told you, I can see why you drank. Mm-hmm. She wasn't passing judgment. She no. was actually very understanding as to mm-hmm. why you would have adopted alcohol as a coping mechanism. Yes. I 100% understand why people find social media mm-hmm. to be a coping mechanism. But just like with alcohol or drugs or sex yeah. or anything else, it might not be, depending on the person, it might not be the best way to cope. Mm-hmm. And what might start as a few posts here and there might turn into absolutely a, a problem and how it affects you. Again, like you said, with alcoholism or any kind of addiction, it's really about, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. It's really about how it affects you. Right. What was the language? Yeah, uh, it's, you know, al- alcoholism is when it like, uh, I forget the exact terminology cause I'm a very bad alcoholic and <laughs> I haven't attended an in-person meeting for quite a while because COVID. <laughs> so I do have to get back and get my two year chip. But anyway, uh, it's, it's not really about how much you drink. It's about the effect that alcohol has on your life. And then like, it makes your life unmanageable. Right. So if you have something that's beginning to make your life unmanageable, that's when you need to have a look at it. Like I am very, I wouldn't say maybe envious is the right word, but I, I do sometimes get very envious when I see that I have friends who can go out and have drinks and maybe they have one wild night and they look like they have so much fun and they wake up the next morning and their life is fine. They don't get that crippling anxiety. They don't feel like everyone hates them. Nothing changes. No one's calling them being like, I hate you. You don't have to apologize. I'm so envious of that because I remember going out like even when it was drinking to cope and it was fun. Um, but yeah, I, I just can't do that. So that's because it made my life unmanageable. And I'm sure there are other addictions that are the same or other coping mechanisms that are the same way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different things that can that people can get addicted to. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, you know, everyone knows about alcoholism or maybe mm-hmm. they know about drug use, but like there's a lot of small things yeah. that we can find that if the definition is how it affects your life, it, it goes beyond substance abuse. It yeah. can go into lots of different... And online arguing, 100%, is yeah. one of those things, which is, again, for me, one of those things I have to back away from. You yep. have no idea how many tweets I start and delete. <laughs> or I have to tell someone else, like, I was going to tweet this. I just need yeah. to share it with someone, you know? <laughs> because because yeah. I, um, I'm i a competitive person mm-hmm. at times. And and I recognize that about myself. That's an addiction, just yeah. as anything else. And, oh. I, and I just don't think that we talk about enough that, that people can then um, come to terms with and recognize mm-hmm. their own potential addictive, uh, in, uh, you know, 
proclivities. Yeah, uh, especially I think it's become worse uh, with COVID, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the countries that have, have experienced or are experiencing lockdowns. You know, it's a really, it's an unprecedented time in living memory. We have had this before when Spanish flu happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God we're not in the Middle Ages because the Black Death lasted for 200 years. Right. So we're doing better than that so far. Yeah, we're but only two years in. So we're only two years in. Give it some time. So give it some time. Talk, talk to me again in 198 years. We'll see where we're at. <laughs> but, uh, you know, back then they didn't have social media. So it's, you know, there's all of these people who are feeling very isolated. They're feeling very, like, um, you know, their mental health suffering and you know online especially if you're living alone is the one place that you can go that everyone is there and it's so easy like i saw it uh last year when we were in lockdown in los angeles um and when all of the black lives matter things was happening i really really noticed like feeling pressure from from online Mm. you know everyone was um you know there was so two very very different sides both were very very angry and there's no you know there was no way into it you are, and if you weren't involved, you were also, you know, it was just everywhere. And I think that's continued. And I think that's where it's becoming, people are forgetting that there is an outside world that we can, you know, we can step away from online and we can reach out to other people. Um, I, like, I think, I think that we, you know, alcoholism, I, I believe I saw somewhere as on the rise mm-hmm. since the pandemic. Yes. Um, domestic violence I have seen yes. is on the rise since the pandemic. Social media activity is on the rise mm-hmm. from the pandemic. And because we don't have open and honest conversations about addiction and and more so not just addiction or trauma, but like what you do about it, mm-hmm. because America, at least America, I'm you've traveled a bit more than me, but like America's solution for everything is buy shit, consume, Yes. right? You have uh, problems in your life, you have trauma, get on social media or you go to the mall. When I used to work in retail, we used to call it retail therapy. How fucked up is yeah. that? And, and, I, and, and again, to your point, um, there are many people who don't have the ability to go to therapy and they yeah. don't have the ability to, you know, to seek more, um, quote unquote professional methods. But mm-hmm. it feels like if, if the 12 step program were something that was more widely available, mm-hmm. cause you don't have to pay to be. To, no, 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 right? absolutely not. No, I think, I think it's not even that it's not widely available cause it's literally in every country in the world. Like in Sweden, there were, there were AA meetings. Um, I think it's the fact that, it's so stigmatized sure, yeah. in a lot of different societies. Like um, here, every, like especially in entertainment, so many people are sober and the people who aren't sober are usually very supportive of those that are. Uh, I have only run into problems being like before I met my wonderful partner, who's amazing. Um, you know, I was trying to date and I think I ran into some difficulties. I, I just ran into difficulties, like not so much in LA, mm-hmm. um, but definitely like in Australia, I went on a date with someone just because my friend was like, hey, you should go on a date with this guy. I was like, okay, well, fine. And I was like, okay, so I don't drink. He's like, cool. And we ended up meeting at a bar and he's like, oh yeah, so what, to order me a drink. I was like, yeah, I, I don't drink. And he's like, oh, okay, well, we'll have to get you drunk sometime. I was like, ha. Huh. And then he proceeded to get absolutely wasted for the rest of the day. And I mentioned I was in a 12 step and he was like weird about it. I was like, I'm pretty sure me being in a 12 step is not as weird as you knowing I don't drink and then proceeding to get shit faced and telling me you should get me drunk. Well, I found, I mean, uh, it's, it's probably been, I think this is like 16 episodes in. I haven't mm-hmm. mentioned I'm vegan yet, which is I'm doing a bad vegan by doing Whoa. so. I know, I know. 16, have you just mentioned it now? Yeah, I think it's the first time. Maybe I don't remember. Oh my but, God. But you know, it's it's the same way when like someone says you're vegan and they say, mm-hmm. oh, b- bacon's uh, yummy or they they, yeah. they purposely have meat in front of you or whatever. There's just a weird thing that 
And again, I, I, I just hearken back to this. I don't think people are really addressing their roles and things. They no. just hide behind stuff. So the yeah. idea that someone might be sober, I don't want to speak for this. I'm not trying to play dime store uh, psychiatrist, but it's, it's very possible that, first and foremost, I can't fathom getting shit-faced drunk on a first date. That seems very improper regardless. It's very Australian. <laughs> but regardless, maybe, maybe that person is a little out of control with their yeah. alcohol usage. And being presented by someone who has taken steps to improve that aspect of their mm-hmm. life is confrontational to them. And they don't want to deal with that, so they'll just hide yeah. behind. And, I, and I do, we just see it in a lot of different arenas, right? It happens in all kinds of arenas. And, and it's, it is, it's especially weird because they common courtesy doesn't even seem to be able to be extended like even if he's a drinker even if he likes drinking mm-hmm. or like you like to eat meat or whatever whatever the scenario mm-hmm. that you play out to be you would think out of just common courtesy and politeness you would just sort of abstain yeah or at least be respectful about it like a glass of wine probably yeah. would have been fine absolutely 10 shots of patron might be a little excessive right yeah. and, and one one would indicate a bit of respect towards yeah. someone's personal um lifestyle versus another one absolutely and it's i think a lot of i think a lot of people do kind of steer away from the 12 steps because they automatically think oh but i'm not a i'm not a insert word here um whereas you don't have to be anything to work them you can be an absolutely normal functioning person with you know no problems at all and it would still improve your life i was going to ask about that like do i'm sure there are some limits just because of just the scale but like if someone didn't classify themselves as an addict mm. or an alcoholic specifically or whatever maybe are they are they um, open to allowing people in or is it sort of more it depends uh, on the meeting like there are lots of closed meetings mm-hmm. and a closed meeting means absolutely not right uh there are definitely meetings for people who are like curious um and they will say that on the website or you might come as a support person mm-hmm. and that's always stated but if you don't um if you're actively still partaking in whatever like whatever substance of the meeting you're attending is and you don't have a plan to stop, then it's kind of discouraged from you coming. That makes sense. Um, unless you're just coming like once or twice to see because obviously it's always open to everyone. But I mean, if you're going to be in a meeting, especially a meeting that they're asking you to speak and stuff, because um, there are some meetings that they kind of make, if it's your first time, they will make you speak and you don't identify as that and you're not planning to, then it's... It's almost a little bit like, why are you here? And like, it makes, especially people in the room, um, you know, I've been there long enough now that I'm okay. But in my first few weeks in the rooms, um, it would make me very uncomfortable if there was someone there, you know. Because you're very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. There was a very famous person who came and spoke at a meeting and I was like three weeks, uh, two weeks in and I just had something horrendous happen to me, like on top of all the other shit. And it was time to share. And like, I really look up to this person. And I tried to start sharing and I was just a mess and in tears. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh God. But if there'd been someone there who would like, been like, no, I'm not an alcoholic. Don't really think I am. I'm just here to like hang out and check it out. Like that would have made me really. Makes perfect sense. There are meetings that are for that. And obviously AA is not going to turn anyone away because, you know, it's an open community and we're dedicated to assisting in the recovery and support of those who are struggling. But like that, you know, there's a kind of a time and a place. Yeah. And, and, and maybe like, because I feel that working those steps would be beneficial for pretty much everyone, yeah. regardless of any addiction issues, maybe AA wouldn't be the right platform because again, people are in a very vulnerable states and, yeah. it's, and, and it might be very difficult to share and be so open about that aspect of yourself. But 
there it would probably be beneficial for any folks who are looking to start any sort of group yeah. or again i don't uh, want to speak for other alcoholics right, on course. this i'm just saying my own experience so just prefacing yeah. that in there in case someone listens and goes well actually i'm like i'm sorry yeah, be fine. <laughs> but they're not supposed to be passing judgment anyway yeah um but you know it might be worthwhile for people to look into it if they're yeah. trying to form any sort of communities or any sort of organizations because like I said, it does feel like it just it's it's a good application for life, mm. and and I know I, I know we talked about this a little bit, but there's people who for the same you know part of the stigma is the stigma of being an alcoholic or an addict, yes. but there's also a stigma of the spiritual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was a big deal for me. Yeah. I, I'm not a because they always say God, but then they my sponsor explained it to me as it's God as in the way you understand it. So yeah. you know. She said it could be Sky Daddy for all and for all those religious people. I apologize, but um, but, you know, but it, there's there's truth to that. Yeah, right? it can be the universe. I I pick the universe. Mm-hmm. I'm a universe person. Um, it can be God. It can be whatever deity or higher power. You just have to acknowledge. Like as an atheist, I suppose you could still do it, but that is very hard because it's you you kind of have to surrender yourself to a higher power and if you sure. don't believe there is a higher power then you have to figure out something that you can say is greater than yourself right it's like you know which is again there are some things i do take issue with even two years in like you know saying like you don't have control you're surrendering yourself to a higher power to me to that i say yes i agree but also i don't agree that i don't have the power it's my choices that got me here and i'm ma- i'm making the choice to get better like I'm not going to sit here passively and say, "Oh, it wasn't my fault. I've surrendered myself to the higher power." Like that's not how I roll. But right. others would argue that I'm too much of my ego on that. Well, and listen, you could look at it both ways, right? Like from my personal beliefs, um, there is a higher power, but it's also both above and and outside of us, mm-hmm. and within and beneath in our psyches. And so, um, from my personal beliefs, we're all different vantage points of God or the universe or the force or the source or the divine or whatever you want to call it. And, and so it can be both. There's a duality in that, just yeah. like there's a duality in us, right? Like we are both, um, Leah and Dave, but we are also both the divine, Yeah, you know, not separate people, but the same. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and for those of you, and, cause like, like in the spiritual, com- in the, like the occultist community, especially like for those people who are still kind of working through their hot topic anger. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be a real rejection of anything that borders along Christian or Catholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found it really interesting that Bill W has some occultist background that it actually isn't a Christian based organization per se. It is a spiritual based yeah. thing, but he actually did divination mm-hmm. um, and worked with Ouija boards and, and tarot yeah, and things of that so nature. Which is so interesting. I'm so glad you shared that with me because I had no idea. Yeah. Because it was founded in the 40s or something. So you just assume it was heavily religious because it was the 40s. Yeah. 40s? 50s? I don't well, know. Well, it's funny because during the 40s and 50s, there was like a big, I don't want to say big, but there was at Maybe least a... Maybe it was the 50s or 60s. I don't remember. There was at least a movement towards um, Eastern religion, mm-hmm. occultism. I mean, America at that time, specifically America, like... It wasn't uncommon for people to dabble in the occult. Oh. Not like now when it's like the, the satanic panic really kicked into high yeah. gear. And and, um, and I think especially coming out of the 60s when like America got super conservative, like mm-hmm. in the 80s. Like there was a time period from say the mid 50s, maybe even it goes back into the 40s till like the end of the 70s when experimenting with spiritual beliefs beyond Christianity or Catholicism was not as... Um, socially unacceptable as it as has been for the last 40 years or so so um 
while interesting, I, I think that it makes sense, especially in the way that it's phrased. It does. It does. Because I know, like, it, it does make sense because it's very, um, you know, it is based around a community. It's not solo work. Mm-hmm. And it is, they're saying, you know, because they, when you read the big book, especially when you read about, like, this, you know, because steps one and two, you have to read a bunch of chapters in the book. Um, and it is very interesting because they say, you know, they tried everything, it never worked, and then this thing came out and it was saving people. And it wasn't like, yes, it was the steps, but it was the community around the steps. And I feel like that is so important because, um, you know, any kind of any kind of like magical work is usually more empowered in a group. Mm-hmm. You know, they have like groups of seven or groups of, you know, the covens divi- and such. Yeah, divine numbers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it it does make sense because it's yeah, like it, it just makes sense yeah. when you when you told me that. I was like, ah. Interesting. Right. right. And you, and, and even though you were raised Catholic, you've obviously had an interest in like witchcraft and things of that yeah. nature as well. So it's not completely foreign to you. No. So ever since I, like my mom bought me, um, like a spell book when I was like a kid and I used to like do rituals from that. And I don't know, it sounds a little crazy when I say it, but it's weird. Like my, my mum and my grandma, they always know things and there's no way that they could know these things. And then as I've gotten older, I found that there's things that I just know right? and I just know them and I know that's going to happen and then it happens and I'm not surprised. Like there's certain things that I, people be like, oh, that'll never happen. I'm like, trust me, just watch, this is going to happen and then it does. And I don't know if it's self-fulfilling prophecy or if it's some like sixth sense, like me going to Sweden, I knew that would happen. When I left, when I left to go to Sweden, I knew I probably wouldn't be back in Australia for a very long time, even though I had a ticket back for January. Mm-hmm. I just, when I left to go to Sweden, I was like, I'm going to meet the love of my life and I did. Right. So just these things. Well, I, the, the way I sort of practice my belief is um, I take my practice seriously, but I don't take myself seriously mm-hmm. because, you know, if there was, an, if there was a, someone hiding in the bushes or behind the curtains and they were looking at me, I'm just drawing symbols in the air. I look like a crazy person. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't think anyone's crazy for their ability to have um, premonition or divination mm-hmm. or anything like that. And Frankly speaking, we could get on a whole other topic about like how time is not really real anyway. Mm-hmm. And if we are in fact part of a, a greater source of mm-hmm. collective intelligence, then surely we'd be able to perceive time as it truly exists, not as we as mm-hmm. h- human individuals perceive it in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. And we could go on and on and on about how there's a, a, a way to justify it, even if you want to go hardcore science. Mm-hmm. And I never try to pass judgment on stuff like that. I think everyone has innate abilities that if we spent a bit more time developing them yeah we would we would gain a, a deeper understanding of the mechanics of the world as at large mm-hmm. um we're getting close to the end here oh, yes. so i i wanted to give you an opportunity to share anything you have coming up i know we're still kind of in the uh, covid world but um you know is there where's your social media where can people find mm-hmm. you um, they should certainly check out your cover of um, Addison Chain's Man in the Box and uh, Temple of Dogs Hunger, Hunger Strike, Strike, which were both excellent. Thank you. And uh, it reminded, I meant to mention that earlier because you were talking about how your sound has kind of evolved into more of a 90s mm-hmm. influence sound. And um, if people want to get an inclination of what your voice sounds like under those parameters, I think both of those cover songs would be a really great place to start. But tell everyone all your info, where they can find you, where they can yeah. find Evil Walks, all that good stuff. Right, uh, you can find Evil Walks, E-V-O-L-W-A-L-K-S, like evil goes for a walk, uh, on Spotify. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, 
If you want to check out me, I'm Adventures in Plasticland and I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Spotify. I Well, Leah Martin-Brown is on Spotify. I'm kind of everywhere. Um, the best place to get a hold of me is Instagram because I that is an addiction I'm working on. Um, and yeah, you can just literally find everything there. Um, I just finished working on an album in Sweden for Evil Walks, but mm-hmm. it's only in the demo stages. I do have three songs that will be getting released in the next few you know, uh, months. One of them is kind of ready to go, but my producer is on Swedish holiday, so they go on holidays forever. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Standard of living. That'd yeah, be great. Yeah, I know, right? What's so that? He went on holidays in July, so I think he'll be getting that mixed back to me in maybe September. Exciting. Um, I know, exciting. very exciting. And then I worked on another secret project, which I can't tell you about yet. That's really cool. Well, you have a bunch of really interesting things coming up. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate your time and the perspective that you gave, especially being so open about sharing about your sobriety and the 12-step program and, and just your journey in general, I think. And I hope that people come away from this, maybe very, um, there may be people who are listening who who have had addictions that they haven't really confronted and maybe they've always wanted to do that and maybe hopefully this allows them a little insight of what that process is like so maybe empowers them to seek it out, check it out, Please look online to make sure whatever meeting you might explore is open to people checking it out. And um, I think explore the 12 steps even individually, even if you don't feel like you have addiction, because there's obviously stuff there that could be beneficial, I think, for any of us trying to cope through life, Um, especially if the alternatives and the only alternatives are using social media as a journal or as a therapy couch. I think if, if that's the only avenue you have available to yourself, it might be... Uh, worthwhile to explore uh, the big book and the 12 steps yeah. and, and, and see if that affects your life in any yeah. personal way. I would recommend checking out, like if you are interested in further reading, there are two AA books that you use for the seventh and eighth steps. And I think the ninth and 10th, one of them is called drop the rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is called drop the rock, the ripple effect, um, especially drop the rock, the ripple effect. Uh, it had a really huge impact on me. I did need to read it to work those steps. But it talks a lot about, um, you know, personal inventories daily, even after you've done the original fourth and fifth steps. And it's just, I think it's good for anyone just looking to improve their lives a little bit and find ways to manage stress. So, yeah. And I, my door is always open. Um, I do often get inboxed by the, the most random people about sobriety. Uh, my door is always open. Um, if you don't feel confident to go to a meeting or you're not sure how to find one, uh, Adventures in Plasticland, my DMs are always open for people who are seriously looking for advice or need help. Um, you know, cause part of the 12 step program is once you've completed the steps to be open to assisting anyone, um, and never feel silly. I'm not a judgmental person. Um, you know, I had someone reach out to me when I needed it most and took me to a meeting and he changed my life. Um, so I'm always there if anyone has questions, um, genuine questions or just wants to know how they would go about it. So yes. be respectful, please. Yeah, please be respectful. Before you slide into a DM. Yeah. Don't, I don't do that thing where it's like, Hey, I'd like to get sober. Can we get lunch? And then like, try and do the weird dude thing. Try not to do that. Yeah. Don't do that. That's yeah, not cool. That's not cool. Yeah. You gotta work on yourself if that's what you're yeah, no. That's your way of picking up women. <laughs> You got some that has there. happened to me. I believe it. But yeah, no, if you have genuine, like genuinely want help, my door, my inbox is always open. Uh, Excellent. Always there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, good luck and, and gold rings on you for all your future endeavors and art projects and, and your sobriety. It's been a pleasure chatting. All right. Thanks. Okay. Bye. I want to thank Leah once again for coming on the podcast and sharing her story. 
um, people who who go through traumas and especially face addiction, it can be as we noted in, in, you know early in our conversation that it can be difficult to share that publicly with folks. And I really admire her bravery and her strength and her willingness to share that so that perhaps someone on, who is listening on the other end of this might come away with uh, some support or motivation to seek out their own help with addiction, be it uh, through Alcoholic Anonymous or, or any sort of a 12-step program or a therapy or things of that nature. You know, this world is hard to get through. Uh, and, and I think that, that the society that we live in, at least me reporting from, you know, America, we've done a pretty piss poor job creating systems and communities, true communities that support folks and help them uh, overcome the rigors of adulthood, you know, and I think as a, in the in the absence of those fraternities and communities and, and social networks, true social networks in real life, social networks that were previously in place to help us have that support. I think that in the absence of that, we've been bombarded with this idea that technological advancement and consumerism is the way to happiness. And as we've all can recognize that falls short more often than not. It, it at best provides any some sort of short term, um, you know, finger in the in the dam. But before long, the floodwaters will come. And I think that um, in a society where where hardship is thrust upon us at every turn, um, you, we way too often see people use terminology like go seek therapy or uh, go touch grass in a, in a snarky manner and in a condescending manner. But truly, I think that we do need to seek out a better framework by which to pattern our lives and to deal with the rigors of adulthood. And be that through a 12-step program or a magical system or whatever it is that you find that will help you through that. I think that that is the most uh, counterculture punk rock thing that one can do. Uh, Having grown up in the punk rock community... When people were in the the mosh pit, you know, uh, you could use that as a symbolism for the chaos of life and someone fell down no matter what, no matter what band was playing, no matter what city you were in, people reached down and they picked you up. And the whole if the whole pit has to stop to do so, if the whole world has to stop to do so, you stop to pick those folks up. You didn't kick them while you were down. And too often, if you're if you look around yourself and if you see the people in your community are kicking you while you're down, then maybe that's not the kind of community you need to be in. And if you're feeling alone, you're not alone. There are people out there who will help you. There's, uh, you know, again, there's 12-step programs, there's support groups. Seek them out. Every city has some version of it. Um, and if you can't find it, then then that may be when you turn to social media or you turn online to sort of find something remote. But I, I, I think it's important that people feel like they have a true pathway to liberation, uh, that they can move past the devil card if you're into tarot and that kind of thing, and, and they can remove the chains that are binding them, and they can find a way to find sovereignty over their lives. But it oftentimes can't be done alone. So uh, be kind to one another, support one another, be empathetic to one another, and find people like that have integrity, like Leah, who uh, who are who are out there not only having gone through and overcome their own issues, but now they're now they're turning around and they're trying to support others, both in being open about their struggles and in one-on-one um, support and sponsorship. So she gave she was very kind enough to give out her personal Instagram. 
for those who might, again, not might not be able to find something local. Um, she's a very kind-hearted person. If you just do decide to reach out, treat her with the respect that she deserves and treat each other with the respect you deserve because we all have the potential within us to rise above the mire of the mundane world and to seek something greater. And I hope that you will. And I hope that this podcast inspires you in that way. And um, thank you guys. Thank you once again for listening to this podcast. This is very much something that I'm hoping has uh, even in a small way, a positive impact in the world around you. And I wish gold rings on you all. And I thank you and I love you. And until next time, 